Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 23rd of August, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson. And uh, we also have our very own nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans, with us. Well, a nice sunny day, which is good for the tourists who are down in the West Country. So uh, that's a good start. But uh, we'll move straight into the subject of uh, um, what is it really? New COVID, Debbie? Good afternoon. Yes. Um, well, whenever I hear the word safe now, I think of a place where you lock your money up. And of course, what do you do with it? You lock your money up. So to keep us safe, of course, uh, we've been warned that there are some new variants on the way of COVID uh, this winter. And the CNBC have been reporting that don't panic because Eris, which is otherwise known as Strife, that's what it, it does mean, um, have a vaccine ready for the variants of concern. And similarly, um, we'll go on to the next slide. You'll see that not only do we have variants of concern, but the independents are warning that scientists are saying we should mask up. Who? What scientists? Well, this is Professor Christina Pagel, who's being actually very vocal. And even in um, the mirror, she's saying that we need to wear masks again. Now, Christina Pagel is a member of SAGE, but let's just see who she is, because I haven't heard of her before. So when we go and look at her University of College London page, we can see that she's on. She's named as one of the six most influential academics in government. Please note the reference mathematics, engineering and AI Chimera Hub. So I flipped to Wiki very quickly just to see what Wiki was saying. And I found out there that she was also one of the two recipients who received the Lynn Thomas Medal. Now, this is a medal that's given by the Operational Research Society for novelty and real world impact research, along with uh, Professor Devi Sridhar. I'm so sure David Scott will have plenty to say about that. But interestingly, too, she researches congenital heart disease and is linked into Great Ormond Street. She also works alongside Sir David Spiegelhalter, one of Professor Norman Fenton's colleagues. So I'll be very interested to see what Professor Norman Fenton knows about uh, Professor Pagel. But clearly, it looks as though the warning shots have been fired. But my question is, will the public buy into this again? Uh well, that's a key question, isn't it, Debbie? But of course, we should be paying attention not only to the SAGE unit, but SPY B, where the government was prepared to use fear, psychological fear on the public in order to get them to adhere to the restrictions. So are they going to do the same again, do you think, Alex, to uh, uh, ensure that the public does as the government sees fit? It does seem to have been a bit of a winning formula last time, doesn't it, Brian? Particularly with this uh, cult of the uh, young photogenic celebrity academic who writes a puff piece or a book and then gets discussed in Whitehall. And before you know it, the ideas are de rigueur for all policymakers. Yeah, so we're definitely going to stay on the case with this. And if you're not familiar with Spy B or all of the talk about the government's use of applied psychology, have a check of the UK Column website, but also research it for yourself. Well, if we've got medical matters uh, happening, we've got the World Health Organization in there somewhere. What have you got for us? We have got a very welcome correspondence from a UK column viewer whose name I won't be giving. Uh, but let's bring up her email 
uh, to us. She's been speaking to her local constituency member of parliament. Always worth reminding our overseas viewers that unlike many of your systems, we do have these geographical constituencies, which means that you have a nominated legislator who represents you and who has, in theory, to respond to your concerns. Now, uh, this lady's uh, MP is actually a front bencher in the opposition, Jeff Smith. And she says, I have an ongoing correspondence with him about the World Health Organization. This, of course, though she was quite wise, perhaps not to mention it in the correspondence much, was predicated upon uh, James Roguski's and our own Mark Anderson's work uh, on the International Pandemic Treaty and International Health Regulations, particularly the IPT in this side. And she says, I believe much of what this, my Member of Parliament says is factually wrong. We'll be seeing what, in a moment what she thinks is wrong and we'll be replying to him. Yes, always continue your uh, chain of correspondence with your MP. Don't be fobbed off. The WHO is being depicted by this constituency MP as responding to nations' calls for a pandemic preparedness treaty. That's the standard line. So uh, Mr. Smith, like many other MPs, we're not singling him out, will have probably been given a line to take and won't have looked into it much. Well, this, of course, might be the case, admits our viewer, with the right people primed in the right places. You know, it really might be countries saying, would you mind awfully uh, mounting a takeover in the name of world peace and health? So uh, our viewer will, will be asking him, who asked for this, what agencies, what individuals, what reports, what processes he's referring to. Don't let them off that lightly. Now, uh, let's see what she says next, uh, which is uh, even more interesting. Most importantly, he tells me that no deadlines will come up for at least another year. I believe this to be false. Again, not banging a, a, a drum here, but uh, taking a sage approach, uh, evaluating what you get back every time, Brian, which is uh, your advice. He also does not answer my question about what his party's position is, Labour in his case. He seems to be speaking as an individual. Of course, Brian, that's the constitutionally correct position. Before the mid-19th century, that was the only thing your Member of Parliament was when we didn't have party whipping. But this is very useful. He's on the hook as an individual. Uh, he's being asked one question at a time in the, in the method you, uh, you advise. And he seems to be unaware of the silence process, which, of course, is when diplomatic organizations say, are there any objections? If not, then it's uh, adopted, which also happens at national parliaments with statutory instruments, secondary legislation. Uh, let's see then, we won't go through all this, but if people wish to pause the screen uh, at this point, they will see that everything in Mr. Smith's reply to our viewer, which she has put in red, is things that she has her doubts about the veracity of. Not because she's accusing Mr. Smith of corruption, but simply the more uh, ubiquitous problem that he doesn't know what he's talking about because he's been given lines to take. Just looking at a couple of them, the government has joined international partners in call, calling for a global settlement. Uh, the, the UK co-sponsored the assembly resolution for the WHO. COVID remains a significant threat. The virus will change and adapt. Uh, and therefore, with the, co the, the rider, I believe, Mr. Smith says, pandemic preparedness must be taken seriously as a matter of national security. Britain leads the world, of course, Brian, in having a health security agency, formerly the public health uh, bodies for England. Um, protecting national sovereign rights is distinctly still possible. Um, and it's not a conspiracy, but this process in Geneva is based on the very basis of international cooperation. Um, We'll see where this goes, but it's uh, rather telling that uh, members of parliament do seem to speak as individuals uh, when, they, when they get on to this point. And uh, we're going to play a couple of minutes uh, of video at the end of this, which doesn't exactly go with that, I'll be honest. But it uh, was circulated again last week by Hurvoye Moric, uh, the very excellent geopolitics and empire 
podcaster. I always recommend people uh, consume everything that he puts out. Here, a couple of years ago, he's talking to uh, an author, Todd Miller, uh, about why it is that all of the West's uh, blocks of countries and individual countries, uh, Japan, the two North American giants, the United Kingdom and the European Union in particular, why they seem to coordinate so much. The, the focus of this interview from 2021 was on borders. Uh, but you will see a lot of um, uh, uh, commonalities here with how countries club together at uh, UN side bodies like the Geneva WHO and what end they have in mind. Think particularly about what enemy they're putting in the frame as you hear Todd Miller speak. The way that European Union officials, Australia, um, Australian officials, United States officials, Canadian officials, you know, you name it, start talking to each other in these summits, it becomes quite clear that this, what they're doing is just constructing these parts of a, of this bigger, much ma more massive apparatus than, than I could even fathom that was going on. And, and I actually knew about this stuff like going into this. So that's like, when you think, talk about the 77 border walls, well, this thing, those 77 border walls is a part of this, this kind of, I guess, um, collaboration of elites that are, that are coming together, you know, putting up these, these, these walls, then train, you know, all this border patrol training that the United States does, um, not only in Mexico, but in Guatemala and Honduras and Panama and Colombia and Dominican Republic and Kenya in the Philippines and Jordan, you know, you start looking at it and it's, and it's, and it's, um, you know, it all comes together in sort of a harmony and a certain logic of it. Like I started imagining it as a scaffolding, right? A scaffolding of, of these, these many border systems that keeps the system in a system in place, a globalized system, maybe the global economy, the global economy in the sense where, certain small portion of people keep getting richer and many others keep getting poorer, right? A, a global economy that's produced two, what is it, 2,200 billionaires and who have more wealth than 4.6 billion people. For something like that to keep, to, 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 to be able to sustain itself, it needs this kind of militarized apparatus. It needs these like people to be confined to certain places and not being able to have that freedom of movement. So the militarized and security apparatus is the pretext. The US and other Western big boy enforcers are putting up the scaffolding. And whether you're talking border security or health security, the same outcome, which is that the favored contractors and lobbyists uh, are making a financial killing, if not a literal one. Yeah, and that, that is the pattern. And of course, one of the things that uh, that organization, that system is interested in is data. Uh, let's have a look at a little exchange between myself and the GP's uh, surgery. So I have been bombarded with uh, offers of an annual flu vaccination. So this was one of the ones that came through to me on my uh, mobile. Please use the link below to book an appointment. Please be aware we are not administering COVID uh, vaccinations. And then there's a link to acurix.nhs.uk. Well, I had a little bit of a dialogue with the surgery and uh, the result of that was I got them to 
uh, mark me as opting out of receiving texts concerning vaccinations. And uh, my record was also marked so as that uh, not to share information, my personal medical data with other medical agencies. Now, I've got to say that I wrote a nice email and I got a nice and efficient response. Maybe this shows other people what can be achieved if you do tackle your local surgery. But I was simply tired of being bombarded. But here's a Curix. And um, I found this a fascinating company, the simple way to communicate about patient care. Um, lots of nice childish diagrams as we've become used to as adults. And here's some of the boasts, healthcare powered by conversations, 2.5 million messages a week, 50 million patients messaged, 30 million COVID vaccines booked, 30 million investment to date and 200 people make up our team. Well, I'm always fascinated with who the companies are, so I went and had a look at their story. And well, what a start. It started in a rundown hospital in Euston. Do you get a good feeling out of that, Alex? That's one of the most down at heel of London's 12 central stations. Right. So it starts in a rundown hospital in Euston. It was founded by Jacob Haddad and Lawrence uh, Bargary in 2016. And originally it set out to tackle antimicrobial resistance. Um, no doubt Debbie will have something to say about that. But it says at the time, we're just a tiny team in a tiny rundown office in a now demolished hospital. So how did this organization spring into being? Well, I always like to go and have a look at the people. So here's Mr. Haddad. And uh, this is for a rewired conference where he's going to be speaking. Um, but I was curious as to how he ended up with access to some of my personal data. This is his background. Uh, we've got University of Oxford, a Master's of Engineering, uh, which included economics and management. Uh, Brian, I wonder what David Scott, our civil engineer on the team, would have to say about someone who purports to study engineering plus two other subjects in one degree. Well, I think he'd say the engineering was weakened, but we'll leave that to the viewer to decide. But if you note, he goes on to Imperial College London, where he does an MSc in health policy part time. Notice also the dates, 2016 to 19. And if we go for a, a look for a bit more information, uh, then it gets really interesting because this gentleman's really a flyer back in 2009. He was a Rothschild researcher, and then he jumps up to tackling antimicrobial resistance as cohort six with an organization called Entrepreneur First. So this is an individual who seems to come out of university, and the next minute he's into developing a multi-million pound company. Got, got uh, spotted first, as Oliver Letwin did as well, the Tory grandee by Rothschild. <laughs> Okay, so let's just follow it through. So we're going to go to Entrepreneur First, where the red arrow is showing you at the moment. So here's Entrepreneur First, and it says, we invest in exceptional people to build companies with global impact. But the strange thing about this organization is when I looked, I couldn't really see who these people were. So perhaps our audience can help with this. But this is about investing in individuals in order to create super successful companies. Every one of our founders is a hand chosen 
sorry, is hand chosen for their skills, behaviors, and potential. If you're one of them, we'll give you the ideal environment to trial co-founding partnerships and test ideas at a rapid pace. Plus, we give you access to, quote, a global network of founders, advisors, and investors. But quite who's running this organization wasn't so easy to see. But you can see the power of it over 600 companies and over 10 billion dollars. So it appears that when your health data is shared, um, you see a text, but actually what, be, what is behind it is a very interesting company in this uh, instance, which is hoovering up medical data. And of course, many people are simply not aware of that. And before I just uh, ask Debbie for a brief comment, uh, also bring up this one, which Debbie found a few days ago, the giant Giant Health 2023, uh, Europe's largest, most valuable annual festival of high-tech innovation. Uh, there you are, Debbie. What's your take on data being put out to a Curix and uh, this big company that helped create it? Do you mind if I save my comments for extra? Because there's far more to this than meets the eye. Okay, well, that's it. So if you're a subscriber of UK Column, you can join us for extra. Uh, now, where does that take us, um, Alex? I think a bit of censorship. EU censorship. But before that, uh, just a call out to viewers that early uh, versions of that company name, Acurix, had a capital R, lowercase x at the end. It strikes me that that's jargon uh, acronym speak, capital R, lowercase x. There may be a meaning in there for somebody who knows what it is. Uh, but on Friday, as reported here by Verdict, which uh, is a, a news platform for businesses. Uh, Europe's, or the EU's as that should really read, Digital Services Act comes into force. They are subheading that with, in the event of non-compliance, the EU can issue sanctions of up to 6% of a company's annual turnover. This should be read in concert with the media board uh, proposals which are now being cobbled together by the EU, which Taylor Hudak has reported on so well for Children's Health Defence EU. Uh, but here's the interesting bit, that the law uh, obliges digital platforms, the big ones that is, uh, just under 20 of these big boys, to remove what they call illegal content. But the illegal includes uh, uh, crimes of feeling hate speech, you know, which haven't been uh, put into corpus juris even at EU level, and some of the member states don't have it. Denmark, the Netherlands, for example, don't. Uh, Article 13 of this Act forces these top-tier platforms to remove counterfeiting companies. It all sounds like consumer protection, the kind of stuff that European parliamentarians particularly like saying they're doing, you know, explain that your algorithms aren't prejudiced against races and ages and so on. But the, the long and the short of it is that you will get uh, people uh, being uh, booted off their uh, platforms uh, at, the, you know, the, at the top tier, YouTube, LinkedIn, etc., uh, if they uh, include what is regarded as unleaf, uh, unlawful content, which can include, as I say, hurt feelings. Um, so uh, one of the people who have already spotted uh, where this is going is Reclaim the Net. Uh, I don't know whether this is a mock-up of a graphic or not, or whether they've actually screen captured it in real life, but you can see in the middle of that screen, one of the things you can do with a long click or a right click now uh, long press, I should say, or right click uh, on stuff on social media is report that the content is EU illegal. Now, I don't know where that stuff is going, but it's, of course, inviting an army of snitches. So uh, not a very good development uh, at all. And we're going to see more in the news about the manipulation of social media. Uh, well, due we're coming to that in due course. Well, Debbie, a key subject for you over the last few days has been the dangers of electric vehicles. What have, what have you got? 
Yes, well, I'd just like to remind people that the UK is thinking of importing thousands, possibly millions of Chinese electric vehicles, Chinese electric cars. So with that in mind, I've been keeping a very close eye on electric vehicles and lithium-ion battery fires. So Nikola, uh, a truck manufacturer, have now recalled all their electrical uh, truck fleet over battery fires. Now, my inbox has been full this week uh, with stories of EVs. And I just want to highlight another devastating fire that the Mirror covered this uh, this week. It happened a couple of weeks ago, another death in Kentish town. And on the back of that, I also received um, an email from Billy. And thank you so much to one of our viewers, Billy, who said, just listening to Debbie's report on EV and batteries going on fire. I'm just back from holiday, but before boarding the car ferry in Plymouth, we were asked if the vehicle was electrical or hybrid. All the EVs had a large green sticker on the windscreen. So I decided to look a little bit deeper and I found this article on Peak. Now this is written by somebody that's obviously works within or owns their own ferry company. And he says very interestingly that they've witnessed a number of fires and says the heat intensity will likely set off other vehicles um, uh, around it on ferries. And these fires are very, very difficult to put out. Um, so that's ferries. But when I was standing on a platform waiting for a train the other day, I heard a tannoy announcement. I was on Great Western Railway prohibiting everybody to take an electric scooter on the trains because of the risk of fire. However, electric bikes, for some reason, were allowed on the train. So there's the slide from Great Western Railway, which clearly says that you will no longer be able to bring scooters onto Great Western Railway trains. Also in my mailbag this week, and thank you, huge thanks to Claire, who sent me an email and we've got a copy of the email for you to read on screen. And it says, Dear Brian and Debbie, further to your excellent report on lithium batteries today, I thought I would send you the video of an exploding bike battery at my daughter's place of work. Luckily, nobody was hurt. I've also attached the video file. The battery was a Chinese brand and on a bike in for repair. Luckily, the person working on it on the bike had the sense to stand back when he heard the battery sizzle. So thank you, Claire. Let's look at the video. Now, please, when you're looking at the video, look at the top of the screen outside the shop. You're seeing the CCTV from within the shop. So as we look at that, if we can play the video and it happens very quickly. So just look outside and you'll see the mechanic suddenly step back and you'll see smoke. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing explodes. So this happens very, very, very quickly. Now, luckily, thank goodness, nobody was hurt. But that's how quickly these are happening. And I will continue sounding the alarm on lithium-ion batteries for as long as it takes. Okay, thank you very much for that, Debbie. Well, of course, it does seem that the government and, and the authorities that are promoting e-bikes and electric cars don't want to talk about these risks, which is quite surprising since every other uh, agenda, even if it's the climate, is all about saving us from uh, risks. So we'll continue to watch what's happening. Well, of course, the army has been boasting recently that it's going to be using e-bikes on the battlefield to help preserve the environment. Um, but the other thing that uh, we're still paying attention to is what appears to be the military getting involved in social media. Now, I've got a little film clip here of a military man talking 
I've put in some subtitles because the uh, uh, audio is very poor, um, but let's just get a little bit of an impression about what this man has to say. Today, I want to spend a few minutes talking to you about considerations for the tactical military exploitation of social media. But please note here that when I talk about tactical, I don't always mean the face of the enemy. As we've just heard, there is very real value and very real use in social media in the humanitarian assistance and disaster relief uh, area, and also influencing the soldiers in the home base. So, how can social media be exploited to support tactical actions? To maximise the utility of social media, you need to use it socially. It should not be used as another delivery platform for traditional media products and press releases. Perhaps lost the ability or the, the uh, incentive to read, read and read the paper. The visual means is clearly the future. Just look at the propaganda spread by the Islamic State. It requires no words. The message is clear from the picture below. I think the social media exploitation can be divided into two categories. Passive and active. Within passive exploitation, one might consider the intelligence preparation of the environment, monitoring of the environment, and collecting intelligence or insight. Within the active exploitation sphere, one might consider engaging with your target audience, and again, that could be soldiers, sailors, air air service people at home, or it could be of, uh, a disaster. Well, there we are. I found this a fascinating little clip. I don't know who the gentleman was speaking. I don't know where it took place, but it did take place in the last uh, few days. But he was saying some things which I found astonishing, mm. uh, one of which is that the target might be an enemy. Uh, he's talking military language tactics. Uh, it could be an enemy, but it could be the soldiers at, at home. So what I saw very clearly was this is talking about grooming troops so that they can what only follow the government line. What else did you pick up there, um, the, the big Alex? Tell for me, I'm always linguistically clued up, as you know, Brian. Is um, that's the first. Uh, noun that was used was was more uh, for, for why people don't read. Uh, he said reams of paper. That's just over exaggeration. Why people allegedly don't read documents anymore uh, is because they've lost the ability. You know that's the throw hands up in horror. Oh, people these days, what are the schools doing? Then he gets a bit more honest and a bit Freudian and says uh, they've lost the incentive. So in other words, if you tell people your job depends on reading this manual, you jolly well will be able to. I remember, uh, you know, when, as a teenager. Uh, noticing that it was adults above us who were saying, oh, your generation will never read. If there was an incentive like to, to, to digest the contents of a difficult book in order to appear cool, uh, suddenly my peers uh, got a magic ability to read. Uh, but of course, no, we're going back to Edward Bernays and, and uh, what's the word, semiotics, you know, suggestion by images. Yes. So, um, well, we'll follow this through. But of course, what we're really concerned about is the Army and 77 Brigade in particular monitoring and interfering with civilian social media. Let's remind ourselves what uh, General Sir Nick Carter, who was uh, the then chief of the defence staff, had to say in April 2020. He said, we've been involved with the Cabinet Office Rapid Response Unit with our 77 Brigade helping to quash rumours 
from misinformation, but also to counter disinformation. So this is the army at the time working alongside the government. And what was the target? The target was, amongst others, the British public. And I'll just uh, follow that up with a look at the uh, appalling Ministry of Defence Twitter page. I know it's called X, but I'm going to call it Twitter, where uh, the Ministry of Defence is using the exact techniques that that army officer is talking about in order to affect the minds of not only people within the armed forces, but also civilians in the wider UK public, which are going to this site to gain information. And what I've said here is that they're influencing the UK public with propaganda via simple skewed emotive social media messages. And the example I've chosen there, of course, is the soldier who's signing a Ukrainian flag at the end of training in UK. And unfortunately, what the Ministry of Defence doesn't say is that young soldier is probably going home to Ukraine to die on the battlefront. So, um, where do we go from there? Germany, are they going to get involved, Alex? They are. Uh, we'll have a Germany segment later in the news, Brian. But just to pick this up, because very few English language sources have, um, during questioning by, uh, I think, uh, a, a, an international press corps, uh, but it was uh, in Germany, at the same city we reported on the duffing up of an AFD politician recently, Augsburg. It was organised by their local title. Uh, Germany's Chancellor, equivalent of Prime Minister Olaf Scholz, the head of government, uh, was asked, uh, is Germany ever, or I think uh, the, the question wording was, Will, are there German troops in Ukraine right now? Uh, if you ask the British or Americans, they won't say no to that. Uh, but Schultz could apparently hand on heart say no, and he immediately followed it up, as only the Russian press corps seem to have picked up on, and now zero hedge in English, with, uh, and there will never be any there. And that's a strong word for the Germans to use. And, you know, there's, a, there's a, still a modicum of being able to hold politicians to their promises in Germany more than in other countries. But they are, of course, as zero hedge notes, still debating whether or not to supply Ukraine with their Taurus missiles, which would allow... Uh, uh, Germany uh, to be on the hook for any damages deep within Russia if they're fired indiscriminately or maliciously by the Ukrainians. Um, it's not just uh, reverting to social media there. It's not just uh, politicians uh, in Britain or the EU who are saying that social media really ought to be controlled or perhaps allowed to die the death. Uh, we're going to hear uh, a couple of examples now from the British Commonwealth, although they would probably rankle at that word, they prefer to call it just the Commonwealth. First, the Prime Minister of Australia, uh, Mr Albanese, uh, who flat out says in this recent interview, if I had my way, social media would go the way of the dodo because we can't have people just writing whatever they want. Uh, and after that, we'll hear the same thing from the, his almost peer, the Canadian Deputy Prime Minister. But first, Anthony Albanese. And a challenge, I'll start with a challenge. I'll give you the perfect world, okay? You've got no caucus to answer to. You've got no Federal Labor Party conference. You've got no elections. You've got no opinion polls. You are dictator for five years. <laughs> what do you do? What's your first act? Well, one is I'm not a supporter of dictatorship. So, um, uh, look, I... Um it, it, it is true that in a democracy you have to account for more than your own views, which is what I guess your your question is getting at. Um, but I do try to do things as much as possible uh, that 
I, I really think uh, advance the long-term interests of the country. I think the, the, the big frustrating thing, if I could do something, maybe ban social media, uh, would, be, would, would be handy. Uh, because Why? What worries about social media? Look, I, I think a couple of things. One is uh, keyboard warriors who can anonymously say anything at all and uh, without any fear, the sort of things that they would never say to you face-to-face, they can just assert as as fact. And it worries me that what that's doing, combined with the pressure that that is on modern journalists, is to really be obsessed by the very short-term cycle. I think the great difficulty is... Dealing with the immediate needs that you need to, to to deal with, the challenges that you're presented, whilst keeping your eye on the medium and long term. What are the long term changes that you need to put in place? Wow. Well, there was a lot of stuttering there. He was clearly struggling for a reply early on, and then out it came. Let's yeah. ban social media so that we don't have to deal with any anybody that puts up an idea challenging us. Bit of a long response, given the uh, the, the faux horror at the beginning of it. Of course, I would never wish to be uh, given an <laughs> enabling act. But yeah. let's hear the less than fragrant Christia Freeland, of course, uh, descended from a Ukrainian war criminal, uh, who is the number two in the uh, Canadian uh, government. She's speaking at an, a graduate ceremony here and uh, she doesn't speak directly about social media but she says in more flowery terms uh, that the era of capitalist uh, democracy may be over there is of course a, a buzz book out at the moment about uh, democratic capitalism uh, both of these terms need a lot of unpicking we don't have time but it's in the same stable as a threat to our democracy Christia Freeland our time of tranquility is over and we are living in an age of change. We're living through what President Biden, on a visit to my country in March, called an inflection point. A time of transformation, he said, that comes once every five or six generations. Now, like it or not, you are graduating into that inflection point. And as some of the very best educated people on our planet, you have the rare and precious opportunity to shape it. So what is this inflection point? What is this upheaval which is going to the roots of humanity itself? There are many ways to describe this transformational moment, but I think they all come down to one fundamental question. Does capitalist democracy still work? That's the question being posed around kitchen tables in my country and this one, as parents wonder if our children can count on capitalist democracy's essential promise of a future more prosperous than our present. It is the question being posed in the muddy and bloodied trenches of Bakhmut as Ukraine's brave Democrats resist the invading forces of Putin's dictatorship. And it is the question being posed by our shrinking glaciers and our warming oceans, which are asking us, wordlessly but emphatically, if democratic societies can rise to the existential challenge of climate change. Now, these are, of course, 
huge and fundamental challenges. I'm not here to counsel despair or retreat. Yeats famously said of another generation that came of age in a liminal moment that the best lacked all conviction while the worst were full of passionate intensity. Brian, the passion's <laughs> intensity was Christia Freeland's, wasn't it? <laughs> I was just going to say that we really should have put out a health warning for our audience before playing that clip. Um, but incredible, and anybody who dares challenge that is, is going to be banned from social media if those people can get their way. Uh, we leave the audience to think about that. Now, we would like to say a very big thank you to everybody that's supporting UK Column. If you're not already a subscriber, please join us and join in the community and get the benefit of UK Column extra time after the news. Uh, you might also like to visit the shop. That's always a great help for us. And of course, we do what we do in order to spread information so the news is freely shared and you are very welcome to share it further with other people. Okay, and uh, Debbie, you've got a new blog which has uh, just gone up on UK Column. Would you like to give us 10 yes. seconds? I will indeed. Uh, some some very, actually what I think are dire warnings about monoclonal antibodies. Uh, NHS experiences, are you shingles ready? Pirola, yet another new variant. And did you know about the Ministry of Possibilities? And if you haven't read it already and you want to know what Klaus Schwab is uh, planning for us next, the great narrative for a better future. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. And just a heads up to our audience that uh, we've got an, another interview to do with the banks. This is with Trevor Kitchen, which will be going out tomorrow at 1pm. So look out for a fascinating dive into matters to do with banking. And I'd just like to say a big thank you to uh, Phil, who sent uh, uh, an email through to us. I'm just going to move on for this bit here, uh, which is essentially that... Um, in uh, uh, a leaflet uh, that they were given in an NHS setting. Uh, it is talking about patients with a uterus womb. We're committed to ensuring patients are free from discrimination regardless of their gender or sexual orientation. If there's a chance you might be pregnant, brackets, all patients with a uterus womb, please inform a member of staff prior to your examination and I think they found this offensive, as I'm sure many uh, women would. Uh, but this is now the result of the NHS uh, agenda and wokeness. I'm just going to advance past one slide. And my mentions begin with uh, NHS Ayrshire and Arran, the latest of the health board areas in Scotland, which David Tate, the concerned citizen uh, who writes for us regularly now, has served FOI requests on. He finds astonishingly that the two university hospitals uh, in a very populous part of the west of Scotland uh, had very, very few deaths actually attributed outright to COVID in each of the three pandemic years. The most striking deep, deep datum was from AIR, where the uh, statistical threshold wasn't even met. And for privacy reasons, they couldn't tell him for any of the three years how many patients had died of rather than with COVID because it was fewer than five. And at the other um, uh, university hospital in the area, uh, one of the largest in Scotland, just outside Kilmarnock, uh, they had only eight uh, within the three years. Yeah, incredible, but uh, well worth reading. And there's going to be more um, from David Tate that I'm sure our audience are going to find very informative. Uh, what have we got here? We've got um, 
anyone concerned about the uh, RSC agenda in schools, the sexualization of young children? Uh, on the 13th of September, we've got another event from Public Child Protection Wales coming up, and that's going to be Parliament Square starting at one o'clock. So if you can get there to support those excellent ladies, please do so. Particular thanks to Louise Collins for bringing that to our attention. Now, I'll go straight into the Netherlands here. Uh, the Telegraaf, which is a very popular newspaper there, is reporting now that Peter Omotzicht has decided to found his own party for the upcoming uh, elections in November, the general election that was precipitated by the collapse of the current five-way uh, coalition. Uh, Omotzicht is a, a cut above uh, all of the previous one-man and one-man, one-woman parties which have been set up in the last 20 years, Brian. Um, so this is going to be one to watch, uh, going back to even before I came to the Netherlands, but around since the turn of the millennium, uh, you had the since-assassinated Pim Fortone was the first guy who tried to do this uh, when he got disenchanted with the existing uh, parties. Uh, then you had Rita Ferdonk, who was anti-immigration. Uh, and then, of course, you had... Uh, uh, the uh, Thierry Baudet movement, which became Forum for Democracy, has gone far beyond a one-man effort now. Geert Wilders became in the, uh, becoming the Party for Freedom. And a lot of others that have, while sitting in Parliament, decided to go it alone. They have all been derided by the Hague establishment uh, as not having what it takes. Whereas Peter Omtzigt, who is often correctly described as too Christian for the Christian Democrats, which is why he's leaving, has really uh, some battle scars forcing uh, disclosures out of civil servants who are extremely unwilling, as hostile as, as Washington, and that's saying something, uh, about the targeting uh, unlawfully uh, through suspicions and prejudice uh, of certain ethnic groups who were in receipt of child benefit, which caused a number of suicides and a wave of despair, the targeting of the farmers, which people are more aware of abroad. So uh, definitely I'm going to flag that up and we'll see what we can do through the later summer and autumn uh, to report on Dutch politics. It is a very splintered scene. Um, Germany next door seems to be following what I recently reported on with regards to the Dutch cartel of parties, as they're sometimes called, wanting to ban the Forum for Democracy uh, because they say the wrong things. And here, uh, Winston Smith, an obvious uh, nom de plume uh, inspired by 1984, George Orwell, blogging as escaping mass psychosis, uh, can't believe that Germany is once again uh, thinking about banning political parties. Um, it's... Uh, Having said, you know, that uh, this is something that's, uh, that the Greens uh, uh, would not largely benefit from, uh, he, he comes to this at the end. The stupidity of this move cannot be overstated. Uh, this is the bit I'd like to major on uh, rather than despairing because it shows that the end of the regime, the fin de siècle, is near. It's almost comically ridiculous in its outward appearance, uh, as we've been reporting recently, that Alternativa für Deutschland might be banned as it reaches the quarter of the electorate level of support. Uh, it comes off as some kind of accelerationist propaganda, Reedy and Davis on our website to understand that. Um, it's just laughable buzzwords. The meat of the article earlier on though in the blog says this rather tellingly, and this is again transnationally true. It's also known that the Greens, uh, not just in Germany, gain benefit from the existence of parties which can be tied with nationalism. So even though it's always the Greens, especially in Germany, who say Germany must die the death, we mustn't mention Germany in official documents, we're just a, a piece of ground that anyone's welcome, nevertheless, they, they, uh, they gain from the punch and Judy show because the mainstream press uh, is ideologically socialist. That's new left, not, not proper old left. Therefore, attacks are targeted to the right. It sways voters to the left and what you see in the last few years around continental Europe is people think they're being really hip and rebellious by voting green. But the greens are the Clinton-style greens now. 
you know, a couple of years ago, the Clintons personally came to Germany's elections uh, one October to see how well the Greens were doing. It's uh, possibly they're taking their Chicago machine uh, with them. Uh, Eugupius, I never tire of recommending, who's now left academia, a, a really incisive German with, as usual for this, this top tier of German bloggers, better English than us, uh, says this about the related issue of the climate uh, hype, which of course is closely allied with the green cause. We know it's been hijacked since the original green parties. He says that the windmills will keep turning and the electric vehicle subsidies will keep flowing, but climate ideology um, will give way to more standard programs in the Green Party. Think of the SNP Scottish Green Coalition, which is on the verge of falling apart with SNP seniors saying we cannot deal with these nutters. So Eugupius says that even in Germany, the, with the biggest Green Party share in the world, basically, social justice and entitlements will be the, 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 the new order of the day. It will be a new left, basically. And uh, the movement will gradually self-assimilate into the rest you know, the, of, the, of the regime uh, allied parties. Uh, what else does Eugupius say, uh, speaking earlier in the blog about a trivial matter, he says, what we learn from it about the Greens is that the technocrats within the party, the climate scarers, have had nothing but defeat and embarrassment, again, paralleled in Scotland's coalition. Their cataclysmic proposals are seen as out of touch, so there's a, a, now a fissure in the party. Uh, so it's not hard to imagine a near future Germany or other such countries in which the Greens, despite the name of their party, ditch climate policies in favour of uh, handout policies, basically, and Atlantis posturing by Annalena Baerbock, who's you know gone, got in the news this week for her plane having to dump two hundred thousand tons of, uh, uh, oh, sorry, twenty thousand tons of of, um, uh, of uh, kerosene uh, in two failed attempts to to take off from Dubai. Uh, democracy liters, for liters, maybe. Yes, um, uh, democracy for Ukraine, money for poor children, rainbow flags on every street corner, and let the EU figure out how to dewarm the earth. Uh, so you see, one of the things coming out of this is that Germany so identifies now with the EU that AFD is, is going to be banned, as the previous blog I showed um, suggested, not only because they talk uh, about uh, remigration, which is a term that the, uh, uh, the establishment really takes horror at, but equally, or almost equally, because they say we can imagine a future without the EU. Uh, Björn Höcke, I think the next uh, slide talks about this, Politico, um, has got a German journalist doing a hatchet job on not the leader, but the most popular man in the party now, Björn Höcke, uh, for this very reason. You know, he recently said uh, the EU must die uh, so that the European countries can live. And uh, uh, this was in a recent Deutsche Welle piece I shared as well, that, uh, that Höcke, uh, the, the Deutsche Welle people then got a renter quote from a historian saying, oh, this, this reminds me of Stalingrad when Hitler said, or Goebbels said that uh, uh, our soldiers must die so that Germany can live. I mean, really wildly uh, idiotic hatchet jobs. But uh, the point being made here is that the German establishment, and now at Brussels level with this Politico piece written by a German, of course, is uh, to, to come up with the cock and bull story that the AFD is run by absolute uh, extremists. Imhild Bostorf is another one they take aim at because she talks about lowering migration. Um, and so you know, the, 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 uh, the, amount, the amount of scarism here uh, is really off the charts. But moving swiftly on, uh, we have uh, Russia uh, really wanting to redraw the map of Europe again. And I don't have time for the commentary. We maybe get to this in extra time. It's a very subtle issue, at least for me, because it was my area of deep expertise a decade and a half ago with the British government. Uh, but this is a really signal move that Medvedev 
who is deputy chair of the Russian Security Council, not the, you know, the, the big hitter you'd think, although he was president before Putin, between Putin's two terms in office. Uh, but Medvedev is, is, is more of a, a loudmouth in Russian politics, but as you know, Brian, uh, not afraid of, of taunting the West in extreme terms. Now he's saying that uh, Russia might do what it's done with the four uh, uh, entities from eastern Ukraine, which it has now annexed, uh, which... As again, I can't go into the details in the main news of, of what this would do to the Caucasus, but it's, it's a, a redrawing of the map, really, uh, on a level with the Kosovo and the Ukraine war. Uh, and it's really a prelude to Russia absorbing Georgia uh, by some mean, means again. Uh, and so there we go. Uh, what's happening else, uh, uh, elsewhere in the Ukraine war? Well, two, I would say, punching above their weight NATO members, ones that you have a high esteem for, Brian, uh, the Netherlands and Denmark, have been leaned upon by their American allies through NATO channels to give F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. Uh, Mr. Zelensky has come up with some interesting numbers that can't really make sense because he said, we're going to get 42 uh, F-16s, a huge number, Brian, um, uh, reminiscent of the answer to life, the universe and everything, if you know your recent British uh, uh, dissident fiction. But uh, nevertheless, the two prime ministers, Rutte and uh, um, uh, Meta, uh, in, in, in Denmark have not given such numbers. The Danish prime minister spoke of perhaps rustling up six. Mark Rutte has, has said no number at all. Uh, and meanwhile, the Air Force Times, a sister paper to the one we just featured, the US Military Times, Air Force Times says that the air war is now shaping up. Famously, it was something that was conspicuous by its absence in the first year. They are admitting here, Brian, in the form of the most senior US Air Force general in Europe, Mr. Hecker, that their top priority is figuring out uh, countering air and missile defenses, jamming, EW, and other anti-access capabilities. Uh, uh, because of the uh, Ukraine war changing the, uh, the, the agenda, uh, air forces are becoming active policemen in certain areas of airspace. And he's more or less admitting that the Baltic corridor, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, less so now Finland's joined NATO, but still, they're the ones, the outliers, and uh, they're going to be aggressively defended, as it were, by, by policing missions. I don't know what you make of that. Just one more before I put it back to you is a call to deep specialists in air power. Uh, the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies has a quite high-ranking podcast guest here. It's obviously a US um, uh, podcast. Uh, their guest this time is Air Marshal Harvey Smith, not the Air Chief Marshal, but he is the Air and Space Commander for the rapidly diminishing Royal Air Force. I have a sense that our um, uh, old Air Force hands who watch uh, could, if they go to this in the show notes, uh, give it a careful listen. I don't think this happens very often at this level. And I think they're going to find a few uh, giveaways here, which I would be uh, delighted, or as would Brian, to receive uh, communications about. Yeah, well, my comment is that if, if you've got senior military people using language like we're trying to figure out how to handle air defence, what they're really saying is that they're floundering around because they've realised that the Russians at the moment have an extremely strong and effective air defence, which is going to handle F-16s as easily as any other aircraft which it's dealt with, but more on that another time. Well, let's switch from uh, matters geopolitical to matters a bit more earthy. And um, Debbie, you've been having a close look at Eden 
I have, yes, not more for. <laughs> I actually live two minutes up the road from or down the road from the Eden Project here in Cornwall. Um, and my huge thanks to Ben Rubin, who sent me a number of links. Uh, and I just want to explore with you one of the links that he sent me because going on at the Eden Project in November is a massive conference. Who with, you might ask? Well, it's an organization called Anthropy. And this is, uh, they're taking, this conference is taking place for 1st to the 3rd of November, a leadership gathering at Eden. So what's uh, Anthropy's message? Well, their message is that you've never been to a gathering like this before. In fact, leave your egos at the door. Now, this organization has a charter. It has a huge agenda. I mean, so many agendas I can't begin to start. But let's look at one in particular. And you might recognize this phrase, the future of Britain. Does that sound familiar? Sound like Tony Blair's narrative? So this is where senior leaders are coming together to discuss a national vision. So let's look at some of the voices of Anthropy because the voices are very interesting. So if you slip to the, the next slide, you can see that they're saying that these are inspiring speakers, dynamic and diverse lineup of visionary leaders embodying the spirit of anthropy. So let's see a few of the names. You might, you might see a, a few familiar. I've put, um, oh, sorry, yes, sponsors. Oh, yes, the sponsors. They're very interesting. Check out the sponsors. I think you'll see some familiar names. If you just slip to the next slide, there should be some... That's it. So there you go. There's all the big names, including Coots, uh, including Seven Trent Water. I'll just leave, leave you to freeze the frame on that. But who's doing the speaking at these conferences, I wonder? Well, there's a host of familiar names. So here's a, here's a few. Uh, the CEO of Channel 4, Alex Mahon, Dame Darcy Bustle, Mar Mariella Frostrup, a uh, broadcaster, Terry Juniper. He's the head of Natural England, who, of course, are assets uh, or getting land back from farmers to rewild. Emma Bridgewater, the founder, Lord Hastings, Kamal Ahmed, journalist. Alan Lovell, chair of the Environment Agency. And it goes it goes on. So if you go to the next slide, you can see Lord Debden is involved, climate change, Imogen Heap, who's a singer and songwriter, uh, Sir Tim Schmidt, the co-founder of the Eden Project. Some of you may recognise Jay Blades, uh, famous for the repair shop on television, and Bina Matra, the chair of the KPMG UK. And it goes on again. So we've got another slide with a few more familiar names, Dr. Jeremy Silver, CEO of Digital Catapult. I'm sure Hedley Reese will be very interested in that. Christine Hodgson, CEO of Seven Trent Water, Jonathan Parrott, author. So I thought to myself, well, how do you go about attending this conference? I'm only down the road, so I haven't got to pay accommodation. So I thought I'd decide to register. So let's have a look at the registration process. Well, you can see there that it will cost you a thousand pounds plus VAT to register. Then you've got to fill in this profile information. So you can see there, you've got to, to give a bio as well. And if you flip to the next slide, it goes on, it gets into quite a grilling. You can see you've got to fill in all of those boxes. Um, fill in, and of course, you've got to give your bank details because you've got to pay for the ticket. So you've got to submit bios, your interests, everything else. But where does your data go? Who does this organization, Anthropy, share your data with? Well, they share it with TRO Group and Swapcard. 
And then you have to go into more links to find out their terms and conditions. And then you have to read and consent to all of their ter terms and conditions. So what do you think, uh, gentlemen? Do you think they'll let me in? Or do you think there needs to be somebody a little bit more discreet that can go and see what they're talking about? I think they would have a good look at you before they let you in. But what do I see happening? I think this is the elite. This is um, the global corporations coming together to further an agenda which is never discussed with the public. The word anthropy makes no sense in Greek or English, but of course, misanthropy does. And the, the, the hatred uh, of people. Yes, I was going to say another clue to this organisation is the strange name. Whenever we're looking at the trail of globalist organisations and think tanks, invariably there's some form of strange name or corruption in the name. It may just be corruption in the letters. But um, any other comments on that one, Debbie? You've got a little video clip, I think. Well, I have got a little video, but maybe we could play that in extra as well if you don't think we've got enough time in uh, the news. It's very interesting. It's very short, but it just gives people an overview. Okay, that's uh, that's excellent. Now, I'm just going to move on through a few things here because I want to get on to your story of Demon and Cornwall Police because I think this is really important. Uh, but Demon and Cornwall Police are in trouble in all sorts of ways. Yes, they are. Devon and Cornwall Police um, are in special measures. Their logo or their mission statement is building safer communities together. But as you can see there, they are in special measures. They're in, in special measures for three areas of improvement, emergency calls, recording of crime and the management of registered sex and violent offenders. I'm not quite sure what management may, uh, what actual management means. And I don't know how violent you have to be to require management. But to make matters even worse, uh, people might know that Will Kerr, the chief constable of Devon and Cornwall Police, has been suspended over serious allegations of sexual offences. Um, now, he denies all allegations, but until this is sorted out and investigated, the gentleman taking charge is another uh, Jim Colwell, um, who has actually admitted that is he's working in far from ideal circumstances, but he ensures that morale remains strong. However, in July, the BBC reported the tragic case of a young man who was arrested near where I live in St Austell, and he was taken to Newquay Police Station um, they say, the police say that he became ill on the way to hospital, uh, on the way, sorry, from St. Austell to Newquay Police Station. Now, the journey is 17 miles, so he could have become extremely critically ill in that 17 miles. When he got to the police station, he was very ill, um, and I believe he received resuscitation, but he died later on in that day, um, at, well, as soon as he got to hospital. Now, I have to say that that young man was a friend of my family and was a friend of my son's, 34, very close friend of my son's. And I had heard through um, his friends and family that two police officers had been arrested for manslaughter, gross um, misconduct and negligence over this case. Um, the BBC reported that uh, there was an independent uh, investigation going on. So I sent the Freedom of Information to Devon and Cornwall Police and I asked them the question 
would uh, would they please comment on what was going on with these two police officers that had been arrested? The, my freedom of information was returned um, with the answer that Devon and Cornwall Police did have the information that I required, but they had refused my freedom of information request. And the grounds were that there was an ongoing investigation by the Independent Office for the Police Conduct into this case. Um, the letter was signed. I think there's another slide of um, the, yeah, there you go. You can see where it came from and you can see how it told me to appeal. Now, I'm very concerned about this because if somebody is arrested normally, uh, there is a press report out to say that a member of the public has been arrested for whatever offence and has been charged. Um, and, and this doesn't seem to interfere with any kind of complaint or criminal procedures. And yet my question is, why are the poli are police officers treated differently from us civilians? And since then, I have heard also from um, people surrounding the family that the police officers are no longer working for Devon and Cornwall Police. I rang um, the office, Devon and Cornwall Police Office, yesterday to ask if this was true and to say that it was a matter of public speculation. Um, and please, would they comment? But they haven't commented as yet. But I'm extremely concerned that Devon and Cornwall Police are covering up information or not releasing information that I believe would be in the public best interest. And my condolences, my huge condolences to the family. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Um, very poignant. Well, what a state of affairs when uh, Devon and Cornwall Police, not only in special measures, but all these things are happening around them. Uh, but of course, when it comes to the police and wrongdoing, very quickly, the public simply don't need to know. So Debbie's taken action here to try and dig out the information. Do you think we'll be seeing BBC's Mariana Spring attempting to get the truth out? No, that's a possibility. Sadly, it's not on David Scott's patch, but it is so reminiscent. Debbie is at the southwestern extremity of England. And uh, several cases from the northeastern extremity of Scotland have identical patterns of police conduct in Britain's most rural localities. So it's absolutely not the case that the rotten apples in the police cluster only in the metropolitan forces and the large cities. Yeah. Well, we will be following on through this and we'll report accordingly. Uh, we're just about the end of today's news. Uh, what have you got for us? An old style newsman has passed at the age of 73 and he's a man who came over to our side in later life. Roger Guttridge lost a, a long uh, battle with cancer uh, earlier this month. And uh, I'm uh, very grateful to uh, Henry Widdus writing for the Light newspaper. You can read the full uh, obituary of 550 words at the, as it currently is drafted when the next edition comes out. But I've, uh, with permission, uh, been uh, uh, going to read out a little about this man. I love that picture because, you know, that's really just right around the time I was born. This is your old fashioned newsman actually making his inquiries, getting things firsthand from the public, using the phone and typing things up. Uh, a wonderful image. Um, so while battling illness, uh, Roger Guttridge took holding the line by the horns. He turned us from a talking shop into a news agency. He was pumping out high quality stories, interviewing members of parliament and raising awareness about big pharma corruption. And while doing that, he even managed to write a book about the history of big pharma's manipulation of everything to do with health going back nearly 200 years. What drove Roger on? 
was a spiritual love for humanity. Don't, not much of that in the mainstream press is there now, Brian. And he carried out that role as a volunteer at Prepare for Change, an international group aimed at helping those on their awakening journey. Uh, he's been in journalism, he was in journalism for 50 years, working all around the southwest of England for local newspapers and also covering swimming for the sports section of the Sunday Express nationally, reporting on the London 2012 Olympics. And he was a competitive swimmer himself at county level. Uh, a journalist of many parts and uh, one who couldn't abide the uh, mainstream anymore as it's departed from him. I don't think he departed from it so much. A uh, couple more and finally items. This may be the next Dutch Prime Minister. He's just resigned his seat as the Netherlands European Commissioner. Franz Timmermans, the polyglot wonder, is, is the image he likes to project of himself and the Anglophile, although he was bashing us hard over Brexit. Uh, here, uh, the account No EU in the Netherlands uh, jokes with this side-on profile for those listening in audio of a generously proportioned Timmerman sitting at a table that can barely contain his belly behind it. And uh, the commentary here is, Timmermans is as good as his word and he is tackling our nitrous oxide emission problems, invented of course, uh, himself. Uh, all on his own, he has in recent weeks scoffed half of the Netherlands uh, cattle stock. And here's one for, uh, this is satire for those who are a bit slow on the uptake and take us too literally. Uh, this has come through to me. It's uh, the 17 uh, Sustainable Development Goals ring uh, becoming a satellite dish or an all-seeing eye in space, uh, sending a frazzling beam to Earth. Footnote, I am not claiming the use of direct en directed energy weapons without evidence. This is a, a comedy section. Um, but here we are, Agenda 2030, World Economic Forum, zapping the Earth. Uh, it seems Africa's uh, heating up most there. And the um, uh, byline there by El Chico Triste, the sad guy, is... We'll burn everything and you'll be happy. Okay, Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, we must end there. We say, as always, a very big thank you to our audience and a huge thank you to everybody who's donated or is subscribing, which is allowing us to move into our new studio. If you want to see the UK column continue to grow, then please support us financially. We can only do what we do with your financial support. If you're a subscriber, stay with us. There will be a UK column extra in a few minutes' time. Otherwise, we will say bye-bye.